so fun to step into Advent. And also looking back last week from our trip to Israel, what a wonderful time. And for those who went that are here this morning, I'm just going to have you stand and be recognized if you want on the Israel trip. We have quite a few that uh, survived. And uh, we are 100% jet lagged, and there's quite a few that are not feeling well. And we'll take a moment to pray uh, towards the end here. But looking back, as we're coming out of the Dead Sea Valley, as we're heading towards Bethlehem, we took a moment to stop kind of in the neighborhood. You have to remember that. Every time uh, we went to a site and uh, revisited the story of Jesus, the disciples, Old Testament, all the way to present time, we're in the neighborhood. We're within the neighborhood of what it could have been like. And uh, one of the neighborhood opportunities was to be in the shepherd's field. And uh, we can see in the landscape carved out areas that had caves. It's pretty common as you're going through the landscape that there are caves um, there. And uh, if you think about it with caves <laughs> in the Holy Land, uh, the caves provided all kinds of opportunities uh, throughout Scripture. Old Testament, you'll notice that David would go in the, the caves as well to hide out. And Saul as well with his... Uh, military. Uh, You also saw caves um, in the Dead Sea area that were perfect environment to hide scrolls, uh, manuscripts from the uh, the tyranny of Rome in the time as the Roman Empire was trying to squeeze out every literature that you can imagine regarding the story of Jesus Christ. And uh, we found out that later on the Dead Sea scrolls were discovered as well. But caves also gave opportunities for shepherds and the sheep to find shelter, a place where they can have a, uh, a place for a manger where they can feed and, and water the sheep as well. But the caves there were beautiful at times, and even in the area above Jericho and the Dead Sea Valley, people actually live in the hillside. They build um, uh, structures and carve out uh, the rest of the caves that are in there, and they live in them today. It's pretty amazing. And so as the caves were uh, a great place for shepherds to keep watch with their flock, um, we also saw that uh, in the Gospel of Luke that tells us an angel announced the birth of Jesus Christ. And caves made sense for a stable. We find out later in the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. Open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. And as we read through verse 8 on, And in some in the region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And in age of the the Lord, the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is wonderful news, wonderful news to shepherds at the time. And I can only imagine if we were to put ourselves in their situation, first of all, an angel appearing to them, that in itself is like, did you see that? I mean, you think about how often when people post, hey, did you see that UFO in the sky? 
did you see that? Did you see that? Or was I, am I the only one that saw that? You know, and, and with our best video evidence, you know, it's still fuzzy and kind of hazy, you know, or, you know, those Bigfoot scenes, you know, we, we still can't see Bigfoot. It just looks like a blob, you know. But uh, this was clearly an angel speaking to the shepherds, saying, you know, I got some good news. And it's great news because this news is not given to the noble and pious people, but it was given to the workers that had a low reputation. In Jewish literature and their culture, this was ranked as shepherds as among the most despised occupation. It would be one that you wouldn't want to do. And even still today, I wouldn't want to do it. But they do have cell phones now. Uh, they're out there with their sheep, riding donkeys, and um, on their cell phone. <laughs> and their sheep are moving along, and they're on their cell phone. It's pretty interesting to see. And, uh, and we also noticed that some of them would uh, throw a rock in a certain direction, and all of a sudden the sheep would follow the rock. People said that sheep are dumb. I don't know. They followed a rock. So it's pretty cool. You know, they got the sheep trained. And... Um, but they're out in the most desolate places, especially when we're in the Dead Sea area. There's, there's, I'm not sure what they're eating. Maybe bugs. I don't know. But uh, nothing green, that's for sure. And uh, it would be really hard, hard work because you're always out in the elements, tending the sheep and protecting them. But Jesus was also identified uh, with this occupation because it says in John 10:11, he is called the Good Shepherd. And that is a wonderful thing. So as we go back to the neighborhood, the traditional place of the angel's visit in the town of uh, Bait uh, Sashar, and I'm going to mess that up, sorry, but I can barely speak English. So, um, But it's Bait Sashar, and it's an area that originally was known as the village of the shepherds. It is known as the eastern suburb of Bethlehem. So there's possible locations within the neighborhood where maybe the shepherds had the visit with the angel. In the eastern part of uh, Beit Sesur, it is a red dome Greek Orthodox church at the site known as the Church of the Shepherds. This is uh, identified with the biblical tower, the Tower of Flock, where Jacob settled after his wife Rachel died. Excavations there had uncovered a series of remains dating back to the mosaic floor of the 4th century uh, Septarian church. So it's a possibility that this might be a location. On the north ridge of Baitzashur, about 1,400 feet away from the Orthodox site, a Catholic site is located there called the Place of Keeping Sheep. And I have a uh, slide right here. This is one of the... Uh, images uh, that shows that chapel there. This is a, a tent-like uh, chapel that was designed by an Italian architect, and it joins the remains of the 4th century church and a later uh, agricultural monastery. So inside, next slide, next, inside we see these beautiful uh, pictures, uh, artwork that's up on the wall inside the dome, telling the story. And um, isn't that amazing? I mean, this is one of the things that we had the opportunity seeing throughout our whole tour is uh, the artwork is just top-notch. And um, 
the ability to do stonework was top-notch, and uh, uh, this is one of the evidence of that. You can go to the next slide. In this slide, I'm going to give you extra credit here. Can you find the white gecko? <laughs> it's so random. I was like, what? And you know, and, and you go in there, it's like, it's all somber, serious. You get a white gecko. Russell made me laugh so hard on the trip. Next slide. Pretty cool. So beyond the chapel and the caves, uh, there was also a cave where they uh, meet. They have a, the small chapel, so you can go to the next slide. Uh, in this cave, you'll see some finds of uh, clay work um, that was left behind. And then next slide. You'll see there's a bunch of benches. So. Um, this is today where they actually have uh, a service in there, and most likely it would be mass. And um, you have to be careful when you go in here. Obviously, there's low-hanging parts and then parts where you can stand up. But it kind of gives you an idea of what they're doing in Israel. And, and I get it. Um, I'm so grateful for these church um, churches all the way back, dating uh, long ago, preserving these sites. Um, but keep in mind that we're just within the neighborhood. And, uh, and then sometimes when you're in the neighborhood, you might even find uh, people like this. So go to the next slide. These are good recruits uh, to be shepherds. And uh, this is us role-playing a little bit. Uh, we went to an event outside of the Sea of Galilee and dating all the way back to Abraham. And uh, we learned about some of the customs and some of the food and the way that they harvest and... Uh, then also we had some training, training in do donkey riding. Next slide. And uh, that was pretty cool. I've never I've ridden a donkey. I've, I've done camels and horses, but a donkey. And I was worried about um, it being stubborn and kicking, kicking off, but no, they're very gentle. And um, in, in the imagery there is that Jesus... Um, chose to come into the city of Jerusalem later in the triumphal entry on a donkey. And the donkey is a beautiful imagery of humility. And I love that connection because later on, Jesus is going to come back on a horse. Not humble. He's going to come to judge. So the big idea that I want to share with you this morning as we continue, the reason for this message in regards to shepherds, I mean, why do we have this, if you think about it? Why, why shepherds? Why not noble, kingship, powerful people? It goes to the shepherds because that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior for the sinners. That is the main idea here. So that people will seek and believe Jesus Christ is the Savior to forgive sins and become the access for people to be right with God. That is the good news that is being portrayed to the shepherds. That is the good news that we can trust in. So this good news that Jesus is more than just a cute baby story. Don't get me wrong, it's a beautiful story, baby Jesus. But it's more than that. 
Jesus is more than a great prophet. He's, he's more than just a good teacher. Jesus is more than a hero to free the oppression of humans. Because you think about in the time of Jesus, uh, what was going on with the Roman Empire, anybody coming along saying that there's going to be hope against them, I mean, you would listen to them and be encouraged by that. But he was more than that. You can see that you no longer need to be doubtful of God's intentions with your soul. You can see that God long suffers for you to believe in Jesus, that Jesus can today rescue you from your shame and your guilt that comes from sin. As a believer and non-believer, this is for all of us because Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and can make you right with God. So as we're traveling about with those last week, we truly had a a memorable time, wonderful time. But our hearts were also burdened because we journeyed with many that do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah like Lord. I find that very interesting. They, They think he's the Messiah, but he's yet the Messiah to come. But he's not Lord. He's a great teacher, a great prophet. The uh, majority of them are stuck in the, uh, uh, the Torah, the Old Testament. They have yet to move on through the rest of Scripture into the New Testament. And so we were burdened to see how many would rather seek and believe and worship holy locations in hoping to get a blessing from rocks or idol images. It was unreal. You go into some of these chapels and there were hanging things, candles, just look like idol on steroids. Just, it was hard. And people would look at these things and and pray and try to get close to these holy sites. It was painful to see so much self-righteous acts on display to gain God's approval through outward righteous activity. So many people groups seeking and looking to be right with God. Can't they just believe and trust Jesus as the Messiah today, that he is King of kings, Lord of lords, and be satisfied with that? (laughs) Well, then I remind myself that I'm really no different than their outward activity in my heart at times. This is just a realization that came to me. They, they are acting out in, in, in real time so we can see the, this effort to gain God's glory and, and blessing. Then I remind myself that my heart at times, I say this, I got this. Only I can change myself. Self-rescuing is a drain on hope because it never satisfies. And if any of us can experience that, it's that There's times when we have hope and are certain of what God's doing in our life, but there's times we don't. And what drains that is that we're trying to self-righteously put ourselves into that work when it's really not for us to pick up. So when I'm at the the praying wall and seeing um, this box-like thing on some of their foreheads and with ropes coming off, wrapping their arms to where it looks like it's like cutting their circulation off, I'm like, why? Why? 
Again, it's the outward of parents of the struggle of the heart seeking for God's blessing and for forgiveness. If there's to be any faithful activity in your life, don't do that. <laughs> it looks really uncomfortable, by the way, wearing a box on your head and having straps come off and you know, cutting circulation off on your arms. But if there's going to be any kind of activity in your life, it's to rehearse the gospel to yourself day in and day out and reminding yourself the good news of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, your appetites for trying to fix and manage sin in your life starts to become faded in the background and God becomes even more and greater. So my application is this. So what about you? How do you receive the good news the angels shared with the shepherds? When you seek ways to satisfy shame and guilt, are you willing to be satisfied that Jesus can forgive you of your sins? Think about that. Can you be satisfied that Jesus is good enough to take care of your sin? Think about these questions. As you discover more good news as we continue on, Seth's going to come up, and as he's preparing to come up, I want to say thank you so much, FBC family, for praying for us and praying for the trip. But also, let's take a moment to stop and pray because the Lord blessed our trip with safety unbelievable. When you go to a country like that, anything can happen. In fact, we found out as soon as we came back, uh, the next day in Jerusalem, there was some, some bombing that was going on by some Palestine people. It was just bombs and backpacks next to a bus stop, and there it was. We didn't run into any of that, and we want to praise God for that. But what we did run into is complete exhaustion, and a good member of the team is sick. Continue to lift up Greg, Pastor Greg, in prayer. Merle, um, pray for their uh, quick healing. Uh, we have uh, a gentleman named Randy. Pray for him. He is not feeling well. Debbie Acord, we pray for continuing healing there. And the team is learning more information about others as well. So let's take a moment to pause and pray as Seth comes up. Lord, we thank you so much again for an amazing week in Israel. May it cause us to continue to reflect more and more that Jesus Christ is all we need. And Lord, I pray for your continually heal, healing upon those who are not feeling well. May they have quick recovery. May you heal them and give them strength. Again, thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Jeff, thank you for that update. You know, that last picture I, I made me laugh because... I think they need to read the story again. I'm pretty sure Mary wrote on the donkey. Not Joseph, but I could be wrong. Yeah, Greg is, uh, got walloped on the way back pretty hard. Um, <clears throat> so he's out of commission and uh, asked me to step in. So I've got a short sermon. Hold your applause. <laughs> Just a little devotional thought for us to get into the Christmas season this year. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving your family, friends, whoever you got to celebrate with. The turkey hangover is real. I tell you what, I'm still feeling it. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80 this morning. This is the song of Zechariah. <clears throat> and his father, that's John the Baptist, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. 
as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So if you remember the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, um, Zechariah was a priest, and he was serving at the temple, doing his duties when the angel Gabriel appeared to him and said that he and his wife are going to receive a child. And they were both very advanced in years. And um, so he went back marveling, wondering what's going to happen, and he doubted, and so the angel made him mute, and he couldn't talk, and he comes back to Elizabeth and tells them the story, and six months later, she's pregnant with who we eventually know to be John the Baptist. And so at his birth, Zechariah sings this song that I just read. And the song is honestly a little bit strange, because the first two-thirds of it aren't even actually about John. They're about the coming Messiah. They're about Jesus. I mean, imagine if you were in the hospital... And the baby that you've prayed for for 60 or 70 years is, is finally coming. And as soon as he's born, you start celebrating the teen mom who's having the baby down the hall. Like, is this really weird? What are you doing, Zechariah? Your, your son that you thought you could never have is finally born. It's kind of weird. But here's the thing, is that Zechariah was a priest, and he was a good one at that. Um, Luke, just a little bit earlier than what we read, verses 5 through 7, says, In the days of Herod king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So the scripture is making clear that their barrenness is not a result of sin, which is kind of a common thing people would expect. If you couldn't bear a child, that's probably due to either sin on your behalf or sin in your family line somewhere, and this is judgment of God. But these were good people. They loved and served God well. It says they were righteous and they walked blamelessly before the Lord. And actually, they were kind of like, you know, a a religious power couple, if you will, because the fact that Zechariah is a priest and he's married to Elizabeth, who was a daughter of Aaron, Aaron is the line of the priests and the high priests. So if you were a priest married to the daughter of a priest, it was like this double sanctification, this double blessing. These are people that everybody looked up to. And so when the angel Gabriel shows up and tells Zechariah that they're going to have a son, my guess is alarm bells were going off in, the, in his head like crazy. And likewise, Elizabeth, when he came back and told her the news. When was the last time a really old, barren couple had a kid? Do you remember? Genesis. The story of Zechariah and Elizabeth mir- mirrors that of Abraham and Sarah. Back in Genesis 15, God initiates his covenant with Israel through supernatural means of provision in providing Isaac for 
um, Abraham and Sarah. And God is now fulfilling his covenant that he started way back in the beginning of the Bible and creating a way for us to keep our end of the covenant through supernatural means of provision that is marked by, first, John being, in a way, not, he's not supernaturally conceived, but he is conceived of means that you would not expect naturally to occur. People that are way advanced in years and no longer able to bear children now bear a child. And then, of course, the immaculate conception of Jesus himself and Mary. So when Zechariah hears that he is going to have a son, which he thinks is not a possibility anymore, their time has passed, I think he starts to realize that the thing they've been waiting for for thousands of years is finally coming to pass. And both Zechariah and Elizabeth recognize that. This goes back to what I was talking about in my sermon a couple weeks ago. I don't expect you to remember, but I mentioned that being grateful fixes your perspective because it allows you to align your perspective with God's perspective, which is reality. And so when your entire storyline lines up with God's, when you see God's story from the beginning of history all throughout history and you watch what he's doing, instead of being filled with fear and anxiety when things pop up that sound crazy or scary, we can be filled with hopeful anticipation of what God is going to do because we look at who he has been all throughout history and we know from scripture that he is going to be that same way for us and for all of eternity. And so that's what Zechariah's song is all about. It's this joyous anticipation of the goodness of God breaking out across the whole world. I know the language of this song is, is poetic and beautiful, and sometimes it can be a bit hard when reading biblical poetry to really get the gist of what it's actually saying. Um, they often use, you know, colloquial terms and things that just we have no concept of understanding or translating into English. Um, but the core meat of the message of this song is really, if I were to sum it up in a paraphrase, the first half of Zechariah's song, he's saying basically this, and I have the sentence up on the screen. He's celebrating that Jesus' incarnation shows God's mercy and faithfulness so that all believers can freely love and serve God fearlessly, wholly, and full of faith. Jesus' incarnation shows God's mercy and faithfulness so that all believers can freely love and serve God fearlessly, wholly, and full of faith. The first thing, fearlessly, as we go out on mission, no matter what he asks us to do, we can trust that though we don't see the, the purposes or how it's going to actually work out, we can trust that he is going to see it through and that the outcomes are guided by his wisdom and his care for us. You know, if I were Zechariah, I would have had some questions rooted in fear. Like, is my aging wife going to survive this birth? I mean, they didn't have hospitals back then. Birth was like the leading reason that women died back before we had modern medicine, at least young women anyway. Is my aching back going to keep up with the fact that I'm about to have a young boy? How are we going to explain this medical impossibility to everyone? But Zechariah doesn't get caught up in those fears, in those worries, in those anxieties. He trusts that what the Lord has set in motion is the best thing possible and that he is going to strengthen and sustain them and see it through. The second thing is, is holy, dedicated to, completely committed to the work of God. Like it's your full-time job. Notice that the second half of the song is Zechariah's words to John. 
his son. And there's no, you can be whatever you want to be. You can be an astronaut if you want. You can go to an Ivy League school. I hope you marry a nice girl, settle down, and have lots of grandkids really quickly because we're already really old. Oh, he doesn't do that. He commits his son to the work of the Lord, much in the way that, uh, oh, man, my brain is blinking. Is it Abraham who sacrifices Isaac? Yeah, that's the one. When Abraham sacrifices Isaac, it's a test, you know? Is he fully committed? Is he fully in? And we see that echoed in Zechariah's prayer and song over his son, that you are the Lord's and your life is dedicated to him. The third thing is full of faith. The word is righteousness. And it's a word that can kind of trip people up sometimes because a lot of times we equate righteousness with sinless perfection. And that's not actually what it means. Righteousness means living in right relationship with God. I, we get this notion that like sin can't be in the presence of God or God can't be in the presence of sin, so we have to like disassociate the two things. And that's just not the reality. That's not how God works. He desires to be in right relationship with people. And he cleanses them, absolutely. But the fact that Zechariah and Elizabeth were living righteously with God, blamelessly in all the commandments, it didn't mean that they never sinned. It mean that they were in an active pursuing of God in every moment, and they were quick to repent and quick to thank the Lord for all he has done and trust him in everything. Sure, they have doubts and they have concerns that are creeping up, but they remain being committed and being faithful to God and to pursue that relationship no matter how strange things might get or the weird things he may ask you to do, like an 80-plus-year-old woman to go through labor. So as I mentioned, the, the second half of Zechariah's song is the prophecy of John the Baptist's role in ushering in the kingdom of God, preparing the way for Jesus. And he plays a big, really important role. I mean, he is the fulfillment of the prophecies of Elijah coming again. He, Jesus says in the scriptures that he is the second Elijah, and he's the last of the Old Testaments, and he ushers in the new age where we don't need prophets and we don't need priests to go before the presence of God. And he's the one that also baptizes Jesus, which is after that point is when Jesus really began his earthly ministry. What was interesting is that Jesus has some really weird words regarding John. Uh, in Matthew chapter 11, if we'll turn there, uh, be on the screen too. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, talking about John. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's a really weird statement, isn't it? It almost seems like he just contradicts what he just said. No one born of women is greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, the leper who has been saved by grace, 
is greater than John the Baptist, the usherer of the new kingdom of God crashing into earth through Jesus Christ. John still had to follow the Jewish law and the Jewish code. He was still bound by all of the expectations of the Old Testament, the cleansing rituals, the worshiping at the temple, performing the right sacrifices. And remember, he was actually beheaded before Jesus was even crucified. And then during his imprisonment that led to his death, even the great John the Baptist, the miracle child of an old barren couple, had serious doubts about Jesus' Messiahship. That's what led Jesus to say these things. Is a few verses earlier in verse 2, John was in prison and he was hearing about all the things that Jesus was doing after he had baptized him. And he sent a messenger to Jesus and said, are you the one to, who is to come or shall we look for another? I mean, his dad at his birth prophesied exactly what Jesus was going to do and knew exactly who Jesus was. And when Jesus arrived to be baptized, John recognized who he was, said, I'm not worthy to baptize you. Then Jesus has baptized me anyway. There was, it seems like there was no doubt in his mind for probably the majority of his life. He knew who he was. He knew who he was serving. He knew who Jesus was. They were cousins, I think, or second cousins maybe. And so the fact that he's sitting in prison going, what in the world happened to my life? I did not expect the Lord to lead me to this. It was enough for even John the Baptist to doubt and question, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he really who he says he is? Is all of this prophecy and all of this promise like, is it too good to be true, or is this actually really what's happening? And he dies before seeing the fulfillment of all that is proclaimed of Jesus. And that's why anyone who is in the kingdom of God has it better than John, because there is no more room for questioning. Now, you will still fight doubts, but at the time when John was doubting, there was uncertainty. Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet, so it, the payment for sin hadn't been paid. In some ways, he had maybe more right than we do to be able to question, is this actually what's really going on? But we get to look through all of Scripture and the testimony of thousands of thousands and thousands of believers for the last 2,000 years that, yeah, that was the real deal. That was Jesus who was crucified. We do have complete freedom. What's really interesting, if you look back at Zechariah's psalm, is if you apply yourself into this text, there's a remarkable similarity to a really important passage in Matthew. Now, I don't normally recommend doing this, reading yourself into a text, because we should be letting the Word be transforming us, but I want to experiment with something just to see, because I think it's really interesting. Um, I want to show you something. So Luke uh, 1, verses six, 76 and 77. I'm going to read it as it is here, and then I'm going to read it again and change four words. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Okay, now I'm going to change four words. And you, Christian, will be called priest of the Most High, and you will go after the Lord to proclaim his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to all peoples in the forgiveness of their sins. I'm curious if that sounds like something else to anybody. For me, that brings me straight to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. I think Zechariah is speaking very similar words to what Jesus says to all of his followers as he says, 
to John. So Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So just like Zechariah foretells the work of John in service to God and his kingdom, so too at the Great Commission, Jesus foretells the work of you and me in service to God and his kingdom. And while John was like standing at the threshold, maybe peeking in the doorway of the kingdom and and the goodness of what is to come, you and I are citizens in the kingdom. We get to proclaim, it's as good in here as everyone says it is, and it's as good in here as everyone hoped it would be. In fact, it's better. And we don't even get to see all of it. We see through a mirror dimly, and we get glimpses. We get a foretaste of the goodness that is still to come. And it's still infinitely better than anything John ever got to experience, even though he baptized Jesus and watched the Holy Spirit physically descend like a dove upon Jesus. And yet somehow that isn't better than us having the Bible and each other in this church. I have a hard time wrapping my brain around that. Here's the thing I love about Christmas. I love Christmas. If you know me at all, I get so excited when it comes every year, and I love pretty much everything about it. But I think the most profound thing is the reminder that it always is, because every year that we publicly celebrate Christmas and acknowledge it is another year that proves that God's mercy is still flowing to all of the world. At the end of a very busy, emotionally taxing, uh, exhausting week a few weeks ago, my wife turned on some music in the speaker in our kitchen, and she accidentally selected a Christmas station. I'm not sure if it was an accident, but allegedly. Now, normally, I'm a, I'm a bit of, as much as I love Christmas, I'm a bit of a stickler. Like, I defend it, like, no Christmas music till the day after Thanksgiving, and then it's all that's on. But it was such a welcome sound. I just felt this, like, wave of joy and peace just wash over me. Honestly, it almost brought a couple tears to my eyes, and I just told her, oh, my goodness, babe, I need Christmas so badly. I just, I need Christmas so badly. Whatever you feel about Christmas, for me, it seriously is the most wonderful time of year. It's one of the last vestiges in our post-Christian woke culture that still clearly points to the only lasting hope, the only source of salvation from our sin, depravity, and evil. And it is also a wonderful time of snow and cozying by a fire and good food and gifts and time with family, and all that is awesome. Enjoy that to the full. God created all of that. But for us as Christians, Christmas should also be a gut check, perhaps a wake-up call. You've just spent a whole year in a frenzy and a flurry of activity, probably done some pretty amazing and fun things, probably did some awesome things for the kingdom, perhaps suffered in some terrible ways as well. But my question is, in all of those things, were you fearlessly, holy, and fully living in faith? Did you pursue the expansion of God's kingdom? Or did you pursue the expansion of your own? 
Zechariah and Elizabeth could have really easily been very excited that they bore a son for many reasons. I mean, in theory, their family name would be carried on, which is a big deal. They would have retained property and rights to certain things like water if they had someone to carry on their family name. Kids back then were also social security. There were no retirement homes. They could rest knowing that their end-of-life care would be taken care of by a good, strong son. Barrenness was considered a disgrace back then, even though Elizabeth was the daughter of a prophet, or a daughter of a priest, there was no doubt in my mind that she battled shame probably her whole married life, that she could never bear Zechariah any children. And so this could even be an opportunity to publicly save face. And it actually does. That's the amazing grace and mercy and beauty of God's gifts and God's working because he does restore honor in our lives as we love and serve him and submit to him. But that's not where Elizabeth chose to place her hope. Back a little bit earlier in the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, when, she, when he came back and after they had conceived, verse 24 in Luke 1 says this, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my approach among people. She hid herself for five months from everybody, after conceiving. She didn't run around shaking a pregnancy test in everybody's face. We finally did it. We're finally pregnant, posting it on Facebook and social media. She chose to dwell in the secret place for five months and just worship the Lord and glorify him and revel in every moment of the fact that she was finally bearing a child, and not only that, but a child that ushers in the kingdom of heaven, which their lives were fully oriented on doing, being a priest and the wife of a priest. Their whole life was committed to that. So she hid until there was no way she could not be showing anymore, and then eventually the news comes out. But I just, I love the fact that when the thing she might have been longing for more than possibly anything in the world happens to her, she retreats to a quiet place and worships the Lord for five months. Doesn't take it upon herself to use that opportunity for any sort of gain, for building of her own kingdom. The miracle of John was an opportunity to expand that kingdom, but they were faithful to God and obeyed Gabriel's instructions and committed John instead to the ushering in of God's kingdom rather than the bolstering up of their own. This is the message of Christmas, that sentence again. Jesus' incarnation shows God's mercy and faithfulness so that all believers can freely love and serve God fearlessly, wholly, and full of faith. I want to close with a couple thoughts. In your service to God, are you wrestling with fear, divided attention, or maybe doubt? Let this season remind you a few of these things. I'm going to go to a few specific scriptures. Write these down. Commit these to memory if this is an area that you are struggling with. Related to being fearless, remember that perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4, 18 through 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. 
Or elsewhere in scripture, it says, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay his life down for his friend. And Jesus laid his life down for his enemies. He loves you so much more than you could ever imagine. And there is no room nor need for fear in the presence of Jesus. Second thing related to divided attention, being holy or not holy committed to the service of the Lord. Remember that you were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I'm curious if there is an area in your life, well, not if, which area of your life, let's be honest, I have them too, where we are not committing them to God. Whose kingdom are you expanding when you wake up on Monday morning and do whatever it is is on your calendar? Lord, I'll give you Sunday morning, but don't touch my afternoon. Football's on. I really want to see that game. Wednesday evening, maybe, maybe even Saturday at the homeless shelter, but don't touch my whatever it is for you. Whose kingdom are you expanding? And the third thing, fighting doubt. It's amazing to me um, the statistics that are out now. I'm sure you've all seen them about doubt, fear, and anxiety. I mean, it's something like 65, 70% of Americans wrestle with fear and anxiety, and only 30 or 40 years ago, that stat was like 30%, if that. We are medicating people like crazy now. And um, it's just, it's amazing how much doubt and fear there is that just creeps in and grabs hold and anxiety that can genuinely send you to the hospital. Remember that he is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 25. This verse has come up the last three weeks in a row. It was in my sermon. It was in Todd's sermon. And now it's up here. So um, somebody needs to hear this in this church. And apparently they haven't heard it yet or they're not believing it yet because this verse keeps coming up. So write the verse down. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 25. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Get that tattooed on your arm, write it over your doorpost, something. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. There is no doubt. There is no questioning. There is no wondering whether God will come through. He may not come through in the way and the means which you would prefer, but he will absolutely come through. So as you enjoy all of the wonderful things that there are to enjoy about this Christmas season, please enjoy them to the full. But do a heart check. Do a gut check. We are not here to eat cookies and turkey and open presents and buy things we don't need. It's wonderful stuff. Enjoy it. But that is not why we are here. Remember the mission, the great commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the, Holy, and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Will you close your eyes with me as we pray? Lord, thank you so much for sending Jesus. Thank you, God, for snow, for living in the northern hemisphere, 
for being able to experience a warm fire with snow outside and people that we love. Thank you for all of the amazing flavors and smells and sights of this season, that they are treasures to be enjoyed, to be thankful for, to point us to you and to your glory and your goodness, foretastes of the amazing sights and sounds and tastes of heaven. But Lord, help us not get caught up in the flurry of Black Friday sales, the flurry of Cyber Monday, the cooked-up emotionalism of the most wonderful time of year and the expectation of gifts and presents and material things that are just going to break next week or burn when you return. Lord, help us to remember in the gathering of our families and our friends that there are so many who are absolutely hopeless and seasons like this are the worst time of year. Lord, help us to have eyes to see that we open our homes, we open our lives to the hurting, the lost, the broken, those who see this as nothing more than an opportunity to have a higher electrical bill and a much larger grocery bill and maybe a couple weeks off. Lord, give us the courage to point to Jesus. This is probably the last strongest vestige of the gospel left in our modern culture. Lord, let us not waste it simply enjoying material possessions, simply enjoying, enjoying temporary pleasures. Help us, Lord, to see who you see, to have your eyes, to see the shepherds that your angels saw and went to, the lowly, the despised, the dirty, the forgotten. Help us to see those places where Jesus would have most likely been born in Medford. And it's not the East Hills. It's probably Bear Creek Park or the Greenway. Lord, help us to see with your eyes the hurting, those who need you. Give us boldness to proclaim the gospel this Christmas season. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.